You're listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hi, Sam. Hi, Bob. How you doing? Not bad. And you? Can't complain. Let me introduce you. I'm Robert Wright, uh, publisher of the Non-Zero Newsletter. This is the Non-Zero Podcast. You are Samuel uh, Cherup, if that's the correct pronunciation. That's, you got it. Yep. Close enough. Uh, you're at the Rand Corporation. You are, I think, what, a senior political scientist there or something? That's, that's, that's the silly title they came up with for me. Yeah, That's a perfectly wonderful. I'd, I'd be, <laughs> you want to trade titles? <laughs> I, I like that title. Um, the uh, You were also in the State Department uh, during the Obama administration. Uh, you recently, like last week, co-authored uh, a piece for foreign affairs called Don't Rule Out Diplomacy in Ukraine. The subtitle, you may or I doubt you gave it the subtitle, but anyway, the subtitle is Biden's Current Strategy Risks Escalation and Forever War. Uh, I want to talk about that. You co-authored that with Miranda. How does how does she pronounce Creep. it? Creep. Um, you also co-authored a book in 2017 called Everyone Loses, The Ukraine Crisis and the Ruinous Contest for Post-Soviet Eurasia. I definitely want to draw on that part of your knowledge because I'd like to get into the roots of the conflict a little more deeply than is common. Uh, before we do that, let's talk a little um, about the the foreign affairs piece. Um, and of course, it comes in the con in the in the aftermath of that uh, famous, maybe infamous letter uh, by thirty progressives in the House uh, trying to push Biden toward uh, some kind of peace initiative. The letter was withdrawn amid blowback the next day. And uh, your your view on the letter, I think, is uh, summarized by this part of the piece. Uh, it would be premature to push for any particular deal or even for direct negotiations today. But by laying the groundwork for these negotiations, now the U.S., together with its Ukrainian partners and its allies, could minimize the risk of dangerous outcomes and help chart a path toward uh, ending the war. Now. Let me let me try to summarize what I think is uh, the perspective you that, that leads you to think this way. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, which is you could say going forward, there's kind of three basic kinds of outcomes. Uh, on the one hand, Russia could regroup, you know, in the, in the wake of this mobilization they've done. And and after the winter or even during the winter, I guess, start succeeding in pushing the lines westward, maybe considerably. Uh, who knows? They have a big arsenal, in which case the day might come where Ukraine would say, I wish we had listened to those 30 progressives. Right. I mean, assuming, of course, that a peace deal is gettable and that assumes things about Russia. But but that's an outcome that would be worse than the one we have. Uh, another possibility is Ukraine succeeds in pushing the lines eastward and conceivably starts approaching the stated goal of actually expelling Russian troops not just from from all the, the ground they've gained since the invasion, but from uh, Crimea, a, a legacy of the, the 2014 thing we'll talk about, uh, and and the, the separatist held territory in the Donbass. But as you note, the more you push the lines in that direction, the more you risk a catastrophic outcome uh, because you pose a threat, if not to Russian national security per se, increasingly to the Putin regime, or at least they might perceive it that way. So the more likely they are to lose lots and lots of territory, the more desperate they may become. You could wind up in a nuclear war or with so-called horizontal escalation, a Europe-wide war between NATO and Russia, even if it remained conventional. Okay, so that's the second outcome. That carries considerable risk in your assessment if, if, if it goes on long enough. And then the third outcome is, not a lot. Of, I mean, you know, more or less a stalemate. I mean, lines go back and forth, no big change. And if that happens, uh, then, you know, you're get basically getting lots of people killed to not improve the situation. Plus, every day carries the risk of some unforeseen escalation uh, that could lead to a catastrophic outcome. And you're forestalling uh, the day in the future when we might get back to dealing with Russia on areas of common interest like arms control. So, is that a fair summary of <laughs> kind of the way you view the thing? You don't you don't put that explicitly in the piece, but how would you amend that? Um, so in the piece, we tried to uh, 
look at the assumptions underlying some of the current thinking about just sort of letting this play out um, uh, from a Western policy perspective, like, you know, on the assumption that the Ukrainians can keep winning, um, that they can do so without provoking a catastrophic escalation. Um, and uh, um, what was my third one? Uh, that, that, um, uh, that, right. So it was the escalation and that the, the, the costs of a, um, and that we won't end up in a protracted conflict, that there'll be a sort of territorial victory will produce um, some sort of stable outcome mm -hmm. at the end of it. And basically, we called into question those. Th well, let me put it this way. Th there are reasons to, to believe that those three assumptions are not um, particularly robust uh, and that things could go differently. As you mentioned, the Russians could start winning um on the ground it's possible uh, i don't think we should exclude that possibility completely escalation remains an ever-present um uh contingency that we need to worry about um and uh we note that there's no really plausible outcome where russia stops contesting a status quo territorially that they find to be um, unacceptable um so you'd really need regime change plus territorial victory to achieve stability at Ukraine's internationally recognized borders, um, which seems to be the sort of new optimistic scenario outcome. And since regime change really is not the policy of the United States, um, uh, and I think there's some uh, legitimate concerns about pursuing it, um, that means that's another recipe for a protracted conflict. So even if Ukraine regains control over all of its sovereign territory, Russia could still violently contest that almost indefinitely. And that's, of course, assuming we get there without escalation. So there are just a lot of ways in which um, things could uh, go sideways that um, we need to keep in mind. Um, and therefore, putting in place the architecture for an eventual uh, negotiation um, seems important it's also to signal where the U.S. thinks uh, this should go. And according to the president, it should have a negotiated end. Um, so we use Biden's um, you know, own op-ed in, in the New York Times to, to demonstrate that he's actually on the same page about that. But uh, the question is what you do to, to bring that about. At the right. moment, we argue that not much is being done. And you're not arguing that a ton more can be done, I guess. I mean, what do you argue should be done more in the way of establishing channels of communication and, and so on? So uh, I think we made a few different ones. One is uh, the way the narrative is publicly discussed. At the moment, the emphasis is on helping the Ukrainians for as long as it takes, not that the war will only end, definitively end in diplomacy. Uh, and those are both quotes from uh, Biden. Um, and they, those two things are not mutually contradictory. Um, the second is about sort of socializing the idea that this is what, in fact, the objective of, of um, uh, the United States and uh, with its allies and with the Ukrainians. So keeping everyone on the same page is important because if there seems to be some divergence from that uh, emerging because it's not really the first item on the agenda in any meeting right now. Um, and then, you know, yes, also um, uh, having more channels that are active with the Russians um, uh, uh, so that at, when the parties are ready, we're in a position to act. Mm -hmm. um, it's not about like calling a great peace conference tomorrow. It's about sort of having the architecture and the sort of political space to, to do it when um, when the battlefield conditions, or at least the battlefield conditions, create political conditions that are conducive to it among the two parties. I mean, the thing is, it is true that the Ukrainians uh, not only get a vote here, but they're the ones fighting and dying. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, it is the talking point about it not being for us to decide is you know, both not only sort of morally justified, but factually um, uh, even though the U.S. does have a lot of influence. So um, if, the, you know, the Ukrainians are winning right now, they're retaking territory. Um, and by uh, as long as that can continue without um, creating, uh, you know, significant escalatory risks, then I see, you know, the argument for letting it continue. But the question is, what happens after that? If we're 
in a pub, adopting a public posture that suggests, particularly to the Russians, that our, we will only accept their unconditional surrender in a sort of Versailles 2.0 kind of uh, outcome, um, then they don't have any incentive to demonstrate interest in, in compromise either. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's about sort of how you position yourself, uh, the U.S. positions itself to to be ready for um, the moment when negotiations might be uh, pursued. Is it even easy to imagine what those would look like in terms of battlefield conditions? I mean, as of now, Putin hasn't even achieved really the uh, objectives implicit in his original pre-invasion speech. In other words, you kind of imagined he was going to, at a minimum, secure uh, Donetsk and Luhansk provinces. He hasn't fully done that. Now he's said he's annexing those and two others, although there has been a kind of signaling of flexibility on the final borders of the other two from the from the Russian side. But um, it's part of the problem that we're a ways from a, a place where you think Putin himself as a political matter could settle for a settlement. I mean, leaving aside the fact that any I mean, if you left Russian troops where they are, that's so far from what Ukraine is envisioning and from right. what may be politically acceptable to them. Leave, leave that aside. But what where would Putin have to be before you could talk peace? So talking is something we should be doing uh, while we're fighting and not envisioning a um, uh, an immediate settlement. I think that the one of the problems has been that from the beginning, um, we haven't, you know, sort of negotiations have been viewed as a concession, which I think has been a mistake. You know, you, you engage in communication with adversaries to make sure that your positions are known to look for possible you know daylight in theirs you're not this is not about um accepting their position it's just a means of pursuing your national interests and i think that that has been um you know understandably politically but i think from a, a policy perspective something of a shortcoming that 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 the communication channels and you know to be fair to both the U.S. government and European allies, that talking to the Russians is extremely frustrating right now, particularly um, from any number of different reasons. But now, mostly because of the, you know, unbelievable degree of personalization of the regime in Russia. So talking to anyone but Putin is, to a certain extent, uh, of minimal utility. But all that being said, you need to keep the channels open. And I think it was a mistake to to have closed them uh, when they were closed. Um, but uh is so there are two ways of answering the question about what what the kind of battlefield conditions might look like you could you could make a case that um so it, it seems like the russians are retreating across um the dipro river in kherson province right now um but does it seem like that to you it seems ambiguous to me yeah well so you need to uh, retreating is harder than attacking uh, militarily, and often you need to build up in order to retreat. Um, so that's what you fire. think is happening. Okay. Uh, that is, uh, okay, let me put it this way. I think that there's, uh, that's a plausible explanation for what's going okay. on. Okay. Okay. So go um, ahead. Sorry. Certainly we've you. seen a lot of traffic uh, going um, uh, east across the river on the <laughs> their improvised bridges. Um, so let's assume that's true. Um, then you've got a sort of natural boundary in the south that Ukrainians are going to have a hard time crossing. Uh, if the, you know, part of the, the northern part of that line in the south holds in Zaporizhia, um, you could sort of see a line emerging, particularly if the winter f- essentially inhibits further forward movement. Mm-hmm. Um, now, it, things are so, dynamic. So we should, a little we should bit just in- say for people who aren't focused on the maps that that, that is kind of what connects Kherson, Zaporizhia connects Kherson to the Donbass, to Donetsk and Luhansk. It's part of the so-called land bridge uh, from Crimea, right? And and uh, and those are the four provinces Putin has said he's annexed. Uh, uh, right, without actually controlling uh, yeah. any of them in full. Um, yeah. So, uh, the you know the ukrainians are making some headway in luhansk the russians are making some headway in donetsk but none of this is like of strategic uh significance they're not dramatic moves forward one way or another 
Um, but you know that that could change, as we've seen. A lot of this has been somewhat unpredictable. Um, I think the river is a is sort of a natural boundary in the in the south. But mm -hmm. in any case, I could draw you a picture about how the winter freezes these lines, and then you sort of get to the sort of natural stalemate that way. Um, but it, it equally, it could go the other way, and there could be a lot of dynamic movement, and you, Russia could rely on these sort of non um, frontline related uh, assaults on Ukraine, all this sort of attacks on the critical infrastructure um, throughout the winter. The winter is not going to stop that. In fact, it'll make it more painful because mm -hmm. of the need to heat houses and so on. Um, so um, there's that. But I do think that, that more broadly, we're not going to really know about the negotiating space until there's a table and people are sitting at it. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, Putin actually said yesterday, interestingly, um, you know, because somebody asked precisely the question that or a version of the question that you asked, which is like, OK, so there's no overlap between our position, our Russian positions and the Ukrainian positions. Well, you know how what possible reason is there to negotiate? And he said, well, you know, uh, you don't. You don't you don't show your willingness to compromise before the negotiation starts. You know, you start out with what they, you know, uh, sort of. Wait, Putin buy. said Putin said that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, good. Um, <laughs> so uh, let, yeah. let me let me ask you, do you. Uh, do you think that the Biden administration has a clear end game in mind, something they're trying to steer this toward? And if so, what is it? It's not clear to me because you know nominally they are embracing the kind of maximalist objective objectives uh of of you know uh pushing russia back to the i guess pre-2014 uh borders well it depends on so um i, I think there are a, a few ways of answering that question I, none of which i find fully satisfactory but um so on the one hand they would say that you know, the exact line is for the Ukrainians to decide. It's not for us to decide, um, which is fair. But uh, it's fair, but it's it's inconsistent with the entire history of actual politics. Right. I mean, traditionally, when a huge country is providing critical uh, support without which the what they call the client state in technical terms, without which that state would collapse, the, the state, the, the big state does apply leverage. Right. I mean, that it would be a, an aberration uh, if that didn't happen in this case, right? Um, you know, there's a lot of examples of client states wagging their patron dogs um, that have uh, in, in, <laughs> I can, in recent years. I can think so. of some in current uh, American uh, international relations, in fact. But but you know what I mean? I mean, it, 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 it's, it, it's wait, yeah, go ahead. Well, let me put it, let me just uh, uh, sort of, agree but things go both ways there are, are cases when leverage like that is exerted and there's uh, there are cases when you know the the client or the smaller partner is able to get what it wants from the bigger bigger state um without having to compromise so you know i i, I wouldn't exclude it going either way in this case um but you're asked your, your question was about like desired outcome. So there was that op-ed in, in, at the end of May where, quoting Zelensky, Biden said this, you know, will end in negotiations. Um, so it's not every day that the president writes an op-ed laying out U.S. objectives. And um, that was, you know, that has not been abandoned in theory. Um, on the other hand, there's this G7 statement from right after the strikes on Ukrainian infrastructure started, which is pretty maximalist, as you use your word. Um, in talking about, you know, full restoration of Ukraine's territorial integrity, um, reparations, justice for war crimes, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I, I would say that there's a little bit of th those things perhaps are mutually contradictory because by definition, we're not going to get everything we want from a negotiation. That's how negotiations work. Um, but uh, so um, I think there. Uh, you know, if they if if pushed, they would say they're this war will only definitively end with negotiations. Ukrainians get to decide, you know, when they're ready for that. Um, I think the concern and the is mostly not with where that line is, but how. How to avoid escalatory 
you know, dynamics in the interim that the, you know, the most mm-hmm. important thing is avoiding this uh, either vertically escalating to nuclear use or horizontally escalating mm-hmm. to a war with NATO. Um, and uh, I think a lot of effort is devoted to that. While, of course, a, you know, perhaps even more effort is devoting to assisting the Ukrainians. So I, I'm not fully satisfied with all that. But if you want, I mean, I think that's probably the best best I can do in terms of presenting it. Yeah. Let me try out a weird theory that popped into my head the other day in terms of what the administration may be aiming for. And it has to do with uh, two problems the administration faces, I'd say. First of all, at this point, any realistic uh, well, peace deal, if there is such a thing, would leave Russia with positive reinforcement for having invaded a sovereign country. That's like mm-hmm. a bad thing for the world. Uh, not that. Well, don't get me started, but not that we haven't done the same thing and been, you know, not that we have not invaded sovereign countries, but. Uh, but haven't generally fact, annexed their territories, at least not in the last hundred years. We have so. not annexed them. I would say Kosovo is an example of borders changing or at least uh, us trying to change borders as a result of an arguably illegal in international law uh, assault on a on a sovereign country. I don't know if you how strongly you differ with that, but you could make that case, right? Sure, but Kosovo is not the 51st state, right? Like it's a, the, the, that's a No, thing. no, no. I, I admit we, we we have not annexed we have not annexed territory, but it's it's commonly said that it would be unprecedented uh, in the post-Cold War era for borders to be changed in Europe but through forceful and and that's a little misleading. But but I don't want I, don't I agree get, with I agree. Yeah. But okay. already it happened in 2014, by the way. <laughs> with Russia with Russia. Yeah. Crimea, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, anyway, there is a valid concern of giving positive yes. reinforcement to Russia for invasion. Um, there is separately a political problem for Biden of just looking like he lost, yep. which is correlated with the other problem. Because if, if Russia is hanging on to a lot of territory, people will say you lost. And what occurred to me is that maybe they're thinking about Regime change is a kind of solution to both problems, and and it would be a different framing of regime change. I mean, normally regime change advocates have this idea that, well, it'll go pretty smoothly and the successor regime will be better by our lights. Well, maybe they're not assuming that. They're just thinking that, well, if Putin is deposed, it'll look like he lost as a result of invading. So so it will not be such an important precedent for other leaders. And B, Biden can say, hey, I won. I'm still standing. I mean, I don't want to be too cynical about it, but let's face it. There are political considerations here. And Biden doesn't want to, uh, you know, American presidents never like uh, to allow the opposing party to say they lost a war. Uh, so in that scenario, you know, it, it, it's that's what the, that's why they're playing for time. In other words, they, they want to make life more and more uncomfortable for Putin, hoping they'll get a regime change that takes the sting out of a peace settlement on both of those fronts. Does that seem crazy? Um, I don't think that, you know, while it's hard not, given what he's done to um, uh, wish that Putin were not in charge, I do not think that that is the objective of U.S. policy. And, you know, they've stated as much, but I also think happen to think it's true that it's not the objective of U.S. policy. I think there are so many wild cards that, uh, you know, uh, a regime change in Russia could introduce. Things could get worse as a result that, you know, people are and and there's also no sign that it's in the offing. So it's not and it's generally not within our power to produce. Um, So I don't I don't see that as um, where they're heading. One thing I would say about loss and, and victory, though. I think there's a framing problem here um, because um, in my view, um, and I think this could be made into a sort of public narrative, Russia has already lost no matter where the line is. Like Russia's strategic defeat, as I think the term is often tossed around um, by um, US officials, is already a thing. Like that's done. And no matter you know how much territory Russia takes control over um, because of the, you know, astonishing damage to a their military capabilities b their international reputation c their economy you know their capacity to um rearm i mean this russia is going to be has weakened itself um 
you know, in the last nine months, more than any U.S. policy or any other, you know, could have mm-hmm. could have done. So um, I think if we remit, you know, if the narrative were focused on that as the sort of like we already won. And I think mm-hmm. that's true. Um, if you're looking at it in the sort of strategic rivalry context um, and the rest is details, then that would be probably a better framing politically. Um, you know, there's uh, the politics of um, the power of the, of Zelensky's communication skills have made doing something against his will quite difficult, right? And so you'd really need him on board for any change. And I think that's going to be a major challenge, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so. Yeah. Um, the uh, yeah. final question on this front before we get back, go to 2014. I guess one thing that worries me in that context um, is that, you know, I think your view, as I understand it, is that uh, Putin got into this war largely out of the kind of national security considerations that so-called realists leave, leave, leave aside an exegesis on that term, so-called realists emphasize and that for that reason, perhaps uh, if we had been more attentive to what Russia saw as its critical interests, a lot of this um, maybe could have been avoided. But, you know, as things unfold, uh, you know, I mean, in terms of, well, going way back in American policy, uh, but but certainly up to maybe, you know, a, a month or so before the invasion, uh, leave that aside, uh, things change. And I I worry that uh, increasingly Putin, he's aware, I'm sure, of what you're saying, that uh, this is, um, you know, that in many ways Russia has lost uh, and that he increasingly sees this as a kind of a legacy issue, right? Like, like, you know, I, well, you know, and, and, and that that's just a different set of incentives on his part. It's like, you know, maybe he's decided that come what, whatever happens when I'm dead, they're going to say, Russia has these four provinces. I, this is sheer conjecture, but do, do you? Uh, well, let me just ask you, as a kind of somebody, with, as somebody with some sympathy for the realist perspective, which is probably associated with Rand generally, historically to some extent. Um, do you do you think about these things? How is Putin's psychology changes? To what extent are things other than national security interests and even domestic political interests per se? shaping his uh, perspective. So I'll just a couple of health warnings, as they say, I don't, uh, I don't accept the realist label on myself. Right. Um, Right. And uh, there are many Rand, my colleagues have tons of different views on this set of issues Uh, we certainly don't have a single um, organization view um, and uh, nor do we really take organizational views on anything. uh, except objectivity of research. Um, so uh, the, but to your question, um, I think that, uh, it is, um, plausible, um, that, uh, so none of us are inside of Putin's head. Um, but it certainly is plausible that, that there are other factors going on here besides just pure national security ones. Um, be they legacy, a sort of, cultural pseudo-imperialistic view of um, Russia and Ukraine as one people and, you know, this idea of uh, Ukraine as an artificial state. I think that, you know, it's hard after Putin's article in April of last year, where he sort of laid out this historically grounded view of how Ukraine doesn't really exist uh, or can only exist or can only be secure in with close relations with Russia. It's kind of hard to to to. Um, say that like he doesn't there aren't other ideas driving him um Mm -hmm. i think the question now is less about what drove um him to begin with or even what his maximalist fantasies are about what russia's position in ukraine should be because um reality has demonstrated that he cannot achieve that um and uh you know so he might he might harbor these sort of fantasies about even just territorial control um that are not realizable with the uh capabilities that Russia has brought to bear in the, in this context um 
And, you know, that cold, hard reality is um, kind of, I think, more relevant than his fevered dreams about, um, okay. you know, cultural uh, oneness with the Ukrainian people yeah. and so on. So I, I think that the, that um, that's one point. Another is that when we, um, I think we risk uh, absolutizing things like national security concerns in decision making, saying, okay, well, he has these concerns, he did this thing, therefore, you know, the concerns drove this thing. At, at every point, right, he has, he in, his, in a personalistic autocracy system, and but more broadly, Russia, the Russian leadership has agency in what how they decide to handle problems, right? Mm -hmm. Like so, you could say, okay, prospect of NATO enlargement was a security concern for Russia. They could deal with it in any number of different ways, right? Um, and uh, that he chose this way, I think, ultimately does, um, you know, Russia has uh, agency, had agency in sure. the decision he did, um, and uh, you know, he bears responsibility for it. Sure. Um, As yeah. a yeah. And he's the one who violated international law uh, by invading and all, and all that. Um, you know, at the same time, and this is by way of transition to talking about 2014, when given what you know about, A, who is in fact the leader of Russia, and, and B, just kind of the, the, the range of tendencies you generally see in leaders of uh, superpowers, maybe particularly declining superpowers, I don't know. Mm -hmm. But in any event, just given given what you can kind of guess about the range of possible uh, likely behaviors exhibited by a leader, um, you know, it's possible that we should have done a number of things differently along the way to reduce the probability of something like this happening. Is that fair to say? I would agree with that statement. Okay, so let, let's talk about, and of course, some people would take this all the way back to the 90s, the beginning of NATO expansion. A lot of foreign policy eminences in the U.S. warned uh, that uh, that was a, a bad idea. Uh, you know, the the uh, George Kennan even said, "Look, something bad's going to happen, and people are going to say this is the way Russia is." But no, we we helped uh, create the conditions. But anyway, let's. Uh, and then, of course, in two thousand eight, Bush uh, specifically pledged future membership to Ukraine um, and Georgia. Uh, but let's let's uh, you know big threshold there. But but let's jump to 2014, uh, and let me give you my understanding, which is very limited of what happened. And you can kind of correct me and tell me what other things you think are are relevant. So uh, the Russian president, uh, I mean the Ukrainian president, who was remind me what's uh, what's Viktor Yanukovych. Yanukovych. Okay. Uh, Ukraine was uh, contemplating uh, moving toward the European Union with a so-called, I guess, associate membership or something. And that was the plan. Association agreement, yeah. Association agreement. That was the plan. Uh, Putin was lobbying heavily against this. Now, the first question I have is, you know, I remember hearing Stephen Cohen on the radio at that point, the late uh, Russian expert Steve Cohen, saying at that point that we need more creative diplomacy from the EU because they're basically, you know, membership in the EU means a severing of various kinds of economic relations or beneficial relations uh, between Ukraine and Russia. And, you know, given the sensibilities here, we need a more creative solution. There needs to be, a, a, a you know, some kind of special accommodation. Let me just ask you, does that make sense? Was, was that a case where there should have been uh, more creativity that wouldn't have precluded association with the EU, but would have I don't want to put words in his mouth. I don't know what exactly he was proposing. But did were you at that point thinking uh, maybe this is too dichotomous a way of uh, framing the issue or what? So um, by that point, it was too late, of course. Um, but the framework of the association agreement which sounds, you know, harmless um, is sort of by definition a um, uh, would limit does limit Ukraine's ability to, you know, economically integrate with with Russia or any other state. So basically what the association agreement at its core was about was incorporating large parts of the acquis communautaire, the EU's body of laws and regulations into Ukrainian law. So it was a, a approximation 
of what it meant to be a member of the EU without a membership perspective at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that meant that, you know, you, you, you essentially lost sovereign control or you, you gave sovereign control over your tariffs and your, um, you know, trade policy to Brussels because that, you know, future, they were also obliged to adopt future changes. So Russia, Inclu- including sanctions against Russia in principle, presumably, if that happened in the future, Ukraine would be joining in, but that's, that's just an asterisk. Yeah, I'm not quite. I imagine that's true, but um, I think on trade issues, it was the most important piece. And that, yeah. so, but, and this all, this had to do with basically the way that the EU decided to offer a framework for interaction with um, the current countries of the so called Eastern Partnership, which included Ukraine and Belarus, Moldova, Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan. That it was kind of like the membership process where basically countries that want to become members of the EU have to adopt all of these the EU rules. Um, but here it was like that, but without the prospect of becoming a member and without the structural funds that came along with it. So, but that is very much a, um, you know, so EU, that was what was offered Ukraine and Ukraine willingly entered into that, you know, set of arrangements. And that did, in fact, you know, limit the extent to which it could um, have uh, deeper economic integration with Russia. And over time, it would have redirected trade. There's no question, um, because that's what happens when you sort of join the EU's sort of le- economic legal space, that it becomes much easier to trade um, with uh, mm-hmm. EU members because you have to adopt all their standards. You have to, you know, you, you're, you, you don't face tariffs, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, and it's a bigger market than Russia. Uh, it, it, it was, in my view, um, that model of a key communitaire adoption, not to get too far in the weeds, was not the right one for uh, interact, you know, for for the framework for the EU policy towards its neighbors there. Of course, it's not for me to say there. I'm not an EU citizen. But anyway, um, uh, th- and that did create this sort of black and white situation where Russia was trying to pursue its own economic integration initiatives that would have been incompatible with signing the association agreement. And so Ukraine had this this stark choice to face either one or the other. Mm-hmm. And Putin did, in fact, um, put the screws on for Yanukovych to at least reject mm-hmm. one, if not choose the other. There's some ambiguity as to what the demands were. But yeah, yeah. so Yanukovych did have a change of heart in, in, in accordance with Putin's wishes. And I mean, ostensibly, uh, you could uh, he could argue in terms of Ukrainian national interest that Putin was offering a lot of like subsidies or something. I mean, there were real economic benefits that Russia was offering Ukraine. And uh, superficially, at least, that's what happened. I don't know if stuff was going on under the table or threat, threats were made or what. You said put, he, Putin put the screws on. Uh, how much do we know beyond that he rewarded Ukraine with subsidies for the cha- for Yanukovych's change of heart? They basically shut down bilateral trade for two days, you know, imposing all these ridiculous um, restrictions on it as a sort of warning shot um, in the month or two before the uh, agreement with the EU was signed, basically saying this is, you you know, you will face a um, uh, totally different trading environment with Russia if you if you follow through on this. So there were sticks and carrots. There's no Mm -hmm. question. Um, But the sticks were definitely brandished. Um, And so Yanukovych would have faced uh, significant economic disruption had he gone through with the EU deal because Russia was, you know, basically threatening that. And in Putin's mind, presumably, the EU thing is just kind of intertwined with the NATO thing to some extent. I mean, there are purely economic considerations, but I think he sees the whole thing as the West trying to lure uh, Ukraine out of uh, the Russian sphere of influence in a, in a kind of unified way or, or something, right? Yes. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think we don't that therefore doesn't bring us to the annexation of Crimea. Um, what no, happened no. in the interim is the key variable, right? Right. That there was this revolution. So, so oh, sorry, go ahead. So let's talk about that and the way Putin may see it, uh, which is important in its own right, as well as is the objective truth about whatever happened. But so after Yanukovych's change of heart, there were protests by people who wanted to join the EU. Uh, things, well, I'm skipping a lot, but but things eventually got violent 
There are conf- there are different stories on the two sides as to who started the violence, who's most responsible for the violence. But in any event, Yanukovych did flee the country, presumably for fear of his life. I mean, there were, I think at that point, you know, armed opponents roaming the street and, and things were getting kind of out of control. So you could say he was deposed in a violent revolution. Uh, people who are particularly skeptical of the Western role call it a coup, but uh, leave that aside. The point is he 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 kind of fled for fear of his life. Uh, I think so far these are actual facts, right? Uh, as for uh, uh, Putin's apprehension of the situation, he would point, I, I think, I, you know, he, he seems to view it, and it wouldn't shock me if he actually does, as the, the whole thing is being kind of orchestrated by the West. And of course, there is the famous phone call that Russia presumably taped where uh, Victoria Newland of the State Department is talking to the, amb- the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. And they're basically saying, well, here's who we want to be, you know, in power after whatever. Um, and the person wound up being in power and so on. You know, there's also the fact that if you, if you look at uh, the, 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 the kind of uh, what energized the protests, you can point to these organizations that were funded by uh, National Endowment of Democracy, some by even by the uh, U.S. Embassy in Ukraine, I think, that we would think of as, you know, civil society. It's all good. Putin would think of as you're trying to inject Western influence into Ukraine and so on. Um, as a result, he thinks of this as a, I, I think genuinely as a, to some extent, Western orchestrated thing. And uh, once, and then once it's happened, there are initial signs of, uh, that would not be welcomed by so-called ethnic Russians in Ukraine, whatever those are. But, you know, people in the, in the East and Southeast, uh, there were the parliament did some initiative about lowering the stature of the Russian language and so on. There was that from Putin's point of view, uh, pretty clearly his mind turned to Crimea before, before long, where Russia had this very important naval base that had been leased technically from Ukraine since the breakup of the Soviet Union. That may have figured in his decision to invade Crimea, whatever. Uh, let me let me stop there and ask you what you would add or subtract from that narrative. So um, the U.S. organization, U.S. sponsored organizations, I mean, the NDI, IRI, et cetera, really involvement in this protest movement was quite, I mean, I, there wasn't much of it at all, I think. And um, it, it was very spontaneous and, you know, sort of organic. Um, and it was as much about Yanukovych's authoritarian corrupt rule as it was about EU membership or anything like that. Um, that's one thing. Um, so I would not, you know, whatever Putin saw, uh, there, it's important to note that this was really quite a domestically driven dynamic, even including the violent parts. Um, and um, but what I would note are two things. One uh, that, that we're missing from that. One is the that there was a, a an agreement a couple days before Yanukovych fled that the Russians still talk about. It's kind of funny. That was um, Russia blessed and the, that you, you, European foreign ministers were involved in negotiating that would have sort of allowed for a pacted transition. There would be new elections. You know, basically, Yanukovych would be um, uh, would leave power, but through a new elections and uh, and the opposition would, you know, sort of sign on to this. And basically, the day after the government sort of, you know, collapsed in, in the literal sense, like power, there was a power vacuum. And so that the negotiation, the document itself was sort of OBE by the time it was even signed. Um, and. That was one moment where I think that the Russians thought that there was going to be, okay, so we West has their people, we have ours, and we're going to have a at least a sort of transition here that's orderly. And then that sort of goes out the window, not uh, the, the doing of Western policy at all, more a function of what's going on on the ground. Um, and then what happens in terms of the nature of the transition after Yanukovych departs is that a government that was dominated by people from the Donbass, essentially, and other eastern regions of the country um, shifted and, and was 
by Ukrainian standards, relatively Russia friendly. It's not not exactly pro-Russian isn't the right term because Yanukovych was difficult for the Russians to deal with, too. And as you note, he was pursuing this agreement with the EU until Putin put the screws on him to stop. But um, the shift was to a government that was dominated by people from the west of the country who had a very, you know, sort of anti-Russian leanings. And they came to power um, as a result of a revolution that had a violent sort of vanguard that was a nationalist, far-right, anti-Russian, you know, sort of part of a broader, uh, a non-violent movement. But nonetheless, that part was there. So you think the, the violent vanguard was far-right? With, had far-right nationalist elements, and, no and historically connection to neo-Nazis? Uh, I mean, you know, we could make more you of could, that, sure, but parts of it okay. did. Um, you know, the, there was a portrait of the famous Ukrainian nationalist who did collaborate with the Nazis uh, uh, yeah, on, on, on the Maidan while all this was happening. In fact, it was there still in July 2014 when I, when I, when I visited after that point. Um, but, uh, the, but the majority of the Ukrainians on the, on the square and protesting throughout the country, that was not their, that, what they were driven by, but there was the people who were most motivated and, and that had um, uh, weapons were. I mean, it all seems like ancient history now compared to where we are today. But in any case, I, I think what Russia saw there was a sort of, um, you know, having uh, their position in Ukraine being completely shattered overnight. Right. Um, and so the revolution, I think, is really the trigger for what comes afterwards um, and what the kind of government it brought to power. So basically, Russia saw itself losing everything, Crimea included. Um, and in, in effect, in other words, it, it feared that the naval base could be in jeopardy or yeah. I mean, I mean, it hadn't had Crimea before. It didn't literally lose it, but there was a fear losing the base. Yes. Right. Right. So l let me just quickly interject one thing I, in terms of I don't doubt that that uh, you're right, that there was a lot of kind of indigenous grassroots support. Uh, I, I was watching a documentary about the Maidan revolution. There was this one guy that they said was a was a played a big role. He became a big figure and played a big role in generating enthusiasm for the uh, protests. He was associated with some media outlet. I looked it up online and in Wikipedia, it said that it had gotten some funding from uh, the U.S. embassy in, in, in Ukraine or something. And, and I don't I don't think that necessarily uh, matters much, except that given what we know about human nature, it's the kind of thing a Putin would would seize on, right? I mean, we all have confirmation bias. I just, in terms of imagining his psychology, that's the kind of thing he's focusing on, right? Like he's he's connected. I think he's what mattered to him. To What's what that? Much more. What mattered to him much more was the outcome of the revolution, which was that, like, basically, you know, Russia went from accepting a sort of partial loss of influence with this uh -huh. agreement on February twenty first to on February twenty third, basically. Um, having, uh, you know, the prospect of, as they saw it, losing everything. Um, mm -hmm. so, so, so do yeah. you think then that the framing that Putin seems to be having some success with domestically, as far as I can tell, which is that this is now Russia against the West. It's existential. It's, it's NATO. It's the EU. It's woke people. It's, this is existential. <laughs> do you, do you think that's like, largely a cynical construct on his part or you know what i was suggesting with that one little data point that i thought he might connect into a larger uh kind of conspiratorial picture is that to some extent it's the way he actually views the thing as a, as a struggle with the west but so i think you... he does see popular uprisings as generally not spontaneous that there tend to be external right. sponsors that these are sort of color revolutions it's a tool of u.s foreign policy etc cetera, etc cetera. i think that's broadly true um, the framing of the conflict as being with the West, which has been there since February 2014, um, that does resonate. Um, the uh, extent to which it resonates, you know, the, the, it's it can be debated because if you look at the the, the numbers tend to, um, in terms of Russian views of who's their main enemy and so on, or um, uh, like, do they what are they how do they assess relations with a given western country i mean they fluctuate a lot 
um, which sort of suggests that they're not particularly deeply held and depend a lot on the political context and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, um, but, you know, now we're in a totally different world where Russians are being told that their that their boys and husbands are being killed by, you know, Western proxies. Um, so uh, who knows how what what kind of views are going to emerge from all of this. But OK. Uh, and then, of course, Putin also uh, to, to the extent to which he sponsored and initiated the separatist uprising oh, yes. in the Donbass is, is argued about, but he, he clearly played a role and was willing to see how far it could succeed and, uh, and was willing to support it. The, uh, and then, and then it, it didn't, it didn't succeed all that broadly, at least immediately in a military sense, relatively sliver, uh, slender sliver of the Donbass was carved out by the separatists. Now at that point, there was this Minsk two agreement that, uh everyone signed on to us ukraine uh russia europeans ukraine did not wind up implementing it right i think it's fair to say that they're the ones who in the end uh did not uh did not support it in ways that matter did not actually uh kind of ratify it or something and i gather that would have in effect given the like uh, Donetsk and Luhansk, a kind of veto power over anything like a, a decision to join NATO. So it would have solved the NATO problem. And uh, it, it, is that all right? That, what I mean, is that correct? What, what, what I've said more or less that, you know, because this is, this is the thing that was revived on the eve of the invasion and periodically before then is saying like, wait, this is our, this is our last chance. I mean, we could really try to do do the Smiths two thing, which of course would seem to leave Ukraine in a much better position than I think what you see is the realistic outcomes of, of the war at this point. But what's your line on Minsk, uh, the Minsk deal? Um, so first of all, the U.S. wasn't involved in negotiating it. It was, it was the Germans and the French together with the uh, Ukrainians and the Russians, um, which I think becomes kind of important later on because we never really, the U.S. never really owned it and or took responsibility for it in a did way did we that, sign anything did no, we sign it no, 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 no we didn't US sign a document at all yeah okay um i mean you know like uh, we've expressed support for it nominally some sanctions are linked to russia's implementation of it but the, the u.s was not involved and that was at the time a deliberate decision or at at merkel's request i think from what i understand you know obama let the europeans take the lead um and um but you know the who neither side ended up implementing the provisions completely. But it is true that it was a victor's peace. Um, I mean, Russia just sort of crushed the Ukrainians on the battlefield, and um, uh, the political deal was seen as not at all you know desirable from the Ukrainian perspective. Understandably so, because they were forced to sign it at a barrel of a gun. I think the question becomes like you know would we have be in a better world with a bad Minsk to implemented and, you know, thus the sort of threat of war potentially decreased or what we have now. And, you know, what we have now is a horrible, horrible tragedy to say nothing of the, um, you know, um, you know, just even just from a humanitarian perspective, like uh, the lives lost and the destruction and the global economic disruption, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you know, I, I wrote a piece in November of last year. I can't believe it. it's probably almost a year ago now um, saying, OK, well, it seems like we might have a war. Um, and uh, if the alternative is implementing this bad minced deal, which, uh, you know, no question is bad. Maybe we should try to pursue that because a war would be really horrible. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, not to say that, like, um, it, that necessarily was the cure, um, but it certainly is a plausible, um, you know, historical counterfactual, so to speak, that it might have uh, prevented all this from um, from happening. But I think, and this is the key linkage between 2014 and, and what happened between 2014 and 2022 and now, which is that basically there was no sense of urgency uh, in Washington or other Western capitals about moving ahead on this um, uh, arrangement, um, that it was sort of seen as an acceptable kind of messy interim status quo 
you know, yes, we'd call for Russia to implement Minsk II and, you know, cease fire and withdraw and blah, blah, blah. But like there was no seriousness of purpose about actually making implementation a real thing. It's sort of conflict had died down to a level where it was sort of manageable and so on. And I think that was the key um, oversight that, you know, those of us who were looking at this more, perhaps more closely would say that like, it was never going to be just okay for Russia mm -hmm. to, to, to watch Ukraine, you know, integrate into uh, NATO and, and lose all of its influence there. And just to sort of sit there in the Donbass and, um, and support a tiny little separatist enclave in, indefinitely that something was going to have to give at some point. And then we started sending arms into Ukraine and did, did that further raise the chances of trouble? It was well, meant as a deterrent, of course. Sure. I mean, I, again, uh, I, I hesitate to assign agency to those kinds of decisions, but you could, you could see how, how about causal significance? Well, okay. Um, uh, well, I don't know about causal significance even. I think that the, uh, what, 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 is true is that like Russia saw its um, you know uh, near nightmare scenario materializing that there was going to be a sort of Ukraine where it had no levers of influence you know Zelensky sort of locked up um, Putin's or put under house arrest his major proxy in Ukrainian politics. Um, that uh, Zelensky, a guy, you know, a Russian speaker from the east uh, who came to power on a platform of peace, couldn't deliver on Minsk too, from Russia's perspective. Um, and, uh, you know, so you had uh, and then, you know, Ukraine increasingly being um, procuring and being supplied weapons from not only the United States, but the UK, Turkey with these uh, armed drones and so on. So um, you could see how from Russia's perspective, this might be a sort of window of opportunity that's closing. Um, that leads to states taking decisions that are, you know, that might not be the most well calculated. So, you know, like if the anti-tank javelins hadn't been given to the Ukrainians, would there not have been a war? Well, there might well have still have been a war. So I, I hesitate to, to, it's a bigger picture. They fit into mm -hmm. a bigger picture. It's not just one thing. Um, it rarely is, but um, I think, you know, uh, it's sort of about where the trend lines were heading more broadly. Um, and they weren't going in a direction that Russia could live with, or at least the current Russian leadership. Okay. Do you have time for one more question? I know you need sure. to. Sure. Um, so it, it's about uh, the lay of, uh, it's kind of the, the demographic map of Ukraine. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there was certainly a time when there was, uh, I mean, if you just look at a map of the election outcomes, there was a time when there was a big split politically between West and, and East. And, and you could say that the East was in some sense maybe more pro-Russian or more skeptical of, of uh, policies favored in, in the West or, uh, or something. Um, and, uh, you know, there were, I, presumably you would say there was some degree of indigenous sentiment in support of the separatist movement, leaving aside the question of how exactly dependent it was for success on Russian support. Um, and I've never been able to figure out uh, kind of how meaningful that is at this point. Uh, and another, let me put it another way. I mean, in, in, the, in the Western media, it, it is sometimes presented as if Every town in Ukraine uh, is full of completely full of people uh, who want to be liberated by Ukraine and have uh, no time for the Russians. And I've always thought, well, it must be a little more complicated than that. And and uh, some of these towns, I'm wondering, are they divided in, sen in sentiment? Um, and of course, this is presumably changed over time because, for example, Kharkiv was a time where at one point you might have thought there was a lot of pro-Russian sentiment. On the other, on the other hand, once the Russians invade and start shelling the city, opinions will change. And of course, this matters going forward because it it, it affects things like how easy will it be for uh, Ukraine to uh, seize certain cities and and maintain them uh, without having to play like real hardball, and and so too for Russia. You know, like what. What what cities uh, does it have a rel uh, an easier time holding than other cities? Uh, and of course, on top, in addition to changes of sentiment, you've had actual 
migration. In the, I, I presume that when the Russians come and take a town, most of the people who leave were anti-Russian. And that changes the demographic right there. So, for example, in Kherson, Russia may have a friendlier population than it, than it had before the war. I, I don't know. And I've seen basically no good reporting on this. Do you have anything to say to help help us figure this out? Uh, it, it seems complicated. <laughs> yes. And, um, you know, the Ukrainian uh, public opinion and divides within it are not neatly, they don't neatly fit on ethnic categories um, and even linguistic preferences. Um, you can have, you know, very anti-Russian Russian speakers um, who identify as ethnic Ukrainian. I mean, you know, there's lots of um, uh, the lines are never clear. I mean, I'll just give you one example, like the um, the there's this town in Zaporizhia, Militopol, which was one of the first major towns that the Russians seized. Um, the mayor who uh, was detained and then uh, exchanged in a prisoner swap um, uh, back into Ukrainian controlled areas became something of a celebrity for a little bit. I think there was a New Yorker piece that featured him. His name was Ivan Fyodorov, which is just about as Russian a name as you can get. Um, and uh, ethnically so. Uh, but and and his sort of collaborationist successor, um, you know, the sort of that Russian appointed woman, uh, last name is Danilchenko, which again is a Ukrainian, you know, so th things are quite complicated and it's never as straightforward as either ethnic or linguistic um, preferences or, or self-identification. Um, what I would say is that we don't have any um, real data since the war began to go on to make judgments about this. We have, though, anecdotal reporting, um, which even in Western newspapers uh, has you know, caught my eye. For example, I believe it was in the, the Telegraph, it was a British paper where they were going around with Ukrainian units that were retaking towns in Kharkiv who were saying to the reporter that basically, you know, it's 50-50 in these places as to whether the people here want to see us or not, hmm. are happy to see us or not. Um, and, you know, um, then there was a, a, a an interesting Times story, again, about an embedded reporter who was with the Ukrainian Union when they came upon like an old man in the woods somewhere in, um, again, I think this was also Kharkiv region, and they were immediately suspicious of his political loyalties and whether he had been there spotting for the Russians or so on. Um, and, you know, he claims he was just walking to the woods. Uh, and, you know, so these kinds of things are, I think, playing out. Um, and it's not entirely clear. Obviously, um, you know, Russia uh, has done a lot to um, eliminate any possible warm feelings that people have towards Russia um, in the country by bombing it all the time. Um, and, you know, war crimes, all this stuff is just, you know, there, there's, there has been a caesura um, among the vast majority of Ukrainians. I think that's fair to say. But in the, the separatist held regions that have been held since 2014, particularly in Crimea, um, in areas of the South that Russia has held on to, um, uh, you know, it, there's probably some degree of ambivalence. You know, I think a lot of people are probably just want, you know, the war to stop. Um, but again, this is conjecture because there's there sociology and wartime, generally speaking, is pretty unreliable and um, uh, it's impossible to even conduct there. So um, we, we all only have this sort of anecdotal reporting. Um, but it, the anecdotal reporting is consistent with what we knew before, which is that you know, in, in the east of the country, it's just it's just a complicated story. Um, yeah. And uh, the the contestation over Ukrainian national identity, which was um, before the war, more before 2014, it was much more uh, of a real thing. And, and uh, even before 2022, I mean, now the erasure of everything Russian from Ukraine is sort of state policy and uh, has not met much resistance. Um, so in even terms of like what language in schools, literature, schools? Uh, uh, monuments. So like Bulgakov statue, statues in Ukraine mm -hmm. and Kiev, where he wrote some of his most famous novels and where some of his most famous novels took place, um, have been removed. Um, you know, 
Pushkin Street has been renamed, um, this kind of thing. Uh, so um, is this mainly since the invasion? A, a lot of it since the invasion. There was decommunization after 2014, where a lot mm -hmm. of the sort of Soviet um, era names were, and, and some Tsarist era names were removed from towns and streets and so on. But this, the sort of full-on, um, you know, Russia is the language, Russian is the language of our sort of imperialist oppressors, and therefore we must mm -hmm. resist it. So the, this, the, it's um, it's quite widespread. Uh, there was now. there was some anti-Russian language legislation or policy before the invasion, right? I mean, Putin made a big deal of it. I yeah, don't think I it mean, mattered that of course, much on the that ground. It, never, but, it never went yeah. into effect. Right. Um, but uh, it was a useful, it was it was sort of passed by parliament, but then tabled by the acting president at the time in 2014. Um, but it, 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 you know, it's certainly um, uh, the, the, an effort to make Ukrainian the I mean, it's the state language and so on. Um, but there was de facto bilingualism in, in Ukraine, particularly before 2014, but even before 2022. I think, you know, I, I haven't been back since the war started, but from what I understand, it's just not as um, acceptable to, to, to be... Um, to speak Russian publicly? Uh, well, I mean, that's I'm probably an exaggeration because, of course, you know, now there are a lot of Russian exiles there who speak Russian publicly and... There was even a Russian language version of their, you know, they only there's only one TV channel essentially in Ukraine since the war started. But um, right. so uh, it it it's complicated. I, I'm just there has been a sort of backlash against Russian language for sure uh, mm -hmm. and Russian culture, um, which is you know frankly perfectly understandable under the circumstances. Um, it's just I think that there are. It's a question about how much the war will. Um, uh, you know, forge a sense of nationhood, which actually wars have historically done, right. um, or whether they will, you know, the, the division lines that existed before will persist in some perhaps lessened form. Obviously, the population displacement will play a major role here, too. Okay. I don't suppose there are any a note of hope you can leave us uh, on, is there? Note of hope. Uh, you can no, just say no. Pretty, pretty bleak at the moment. I, uh, Maybe next, if there is a note of hope, I'll, I'll get back to you. Where are you? Will you drop me a line? Okay, we'll do. Okay, well, listen, thank you so much. Uh, your your piece in Foreign Affairs is called Don't Rule Out Diplomacy in Ukraine. Um, your book is called Everyone Loses. I like the recognition there that this is a non-zero-sum game. Not not everyone shares that apprehension uh, <laughs> who, who has influence on American foreign policy. Uh, thanks so much, Sam. My pleasure. Thanks.